couple of weeks here at Redemption as we've moved into the Advent season, uh, we've been taking a look at the book of John and specifically uh, the first chapter of John. And over the, the last couple of weeks, um, Ben has sort of framed John chapter 1 as a cosmic look at Christmas. When you look at the events of Christmas that takes place or at the events of the Advent that take place in Luke chapter 2 or somewhere else like that, you get very specific details about times and places. But John chapter 1 is this big look at Christmas of God, who God is, who Jesus is, um, and what God has done from a, from a very large perspective. And so uh, we'll be continuing on with that this morning, looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18 that Emily and Laurel read for us a second ago, but I'll read again. Um, but these are those verses here, John 1, 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for the opportunity we have to be together, to be reminded of the fact that You stepped into Your creation on behalf of Your people, that You have done something incredible. God, I pray this morning as we move through these few verses in John chapter 1, that You would be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us to You, that we would hear the things that you would have us hear. God, that we would be changed because of this incredible truth. God, we would be changed because Christ is lifted high in this place. Holy Father, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. And so, God, may we hear your words this morning. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. N.T. Wright tells the story about a famous British journalist who is now deceased, a guy named Bernard Levin. Bernard grew up in London, but he was the son of Jewish parents from Central Europe. And when he was a child, his mother would often make him a distinctly Jewish dish for breakfast called matzah bray. And matzah bray is a mixture of matzah wafers and eggs and some spices that are all fried together. Just a typical breakfast for this family. And one day when Bernard was at school, he was called up, into, called up in front of an assembly of the entire school while there was a guest speaker of some sort. And for whatever reason, this guest speaker asked Bernard what he had had for breakfast that morning. And so Bernard answered truthfully. He said, I had matzah bray. And this guy who was addressing the school that day, the speaker um, had no idea what he was talking about. He was ignorant of such cuisine, did not know that language, and so he thinks he must have misheard what the child said, and so he asked again, what did you have for breakfast? Bernard says, I had matzah bray. And so the speaker is concerned at this point because he doesn't understand the words, he doesn't understand what's happening, so he looks to the school headmaster, and the school headmaster comes on stage, and with a there, there, little fella kind of attitude, Ask him again what he had for breakfast. 
And so at this point, Bernard is feeling dismayed, and he's being treated as if he's done something wrong or said something wrong, but he can only do what he's continued to do all along to answer the question, what he had for breakfast, matzah bray. And so the headmaster and this person who's addressing the school are utterly confused at this point, and so they just send him back to his seat, and they don't bring up this interaction ever again. And the assembly moves on. Right? The word this child was saying to the world around him that day was completely incomprehensible, especially to those people in power. They didn't know what he was saying. They didn't get it. They had no frame of reference for how to understand it, nor did they try to understand it. When we look at John chapter 1, at the idea of God becoming flesh, at the idea of God dwelling with us, as John 1.14 talks about, I think maybe sometimes we still forget just how incomprehensible the idea is that God dwelt with us and that that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. I think maybe we sometimes forget how incomprehensible the idea is that the God who created the world by his word, as Ben talked about over the last couple of weeks, would step into the world, would step into his creation in order to be the word who now redeems. The word who begins the recreation process to make everything as it was always intended. The God who created now becomes the God who is present in human flesh to begin redemption and changing things to be the way he always intended them to be. Ultimately, by the resurrection. Changing everything. Right? And just reflect on the story of Christmas for a second. This idea of the incarnation really is kind of incomprehensible. I read an article this week by a pastor who, who referenced how at Christmas, Christians all over the world, millions of them like you and I, millions of us, like we're doing this morning, are pausing to contemplate and celebrate a first century Middle Eastern Jewish infant born to a mother who had never been with a man born to parents who were not going to stay together, born in Bethlehem while angels were singing to shepherds in a field, born under the rule of a king that wanted him dead, so much so that he and his family became refugees in Egypt, born to grow up, work, perform miracles, call people to follow him, born to give his life up, through a Roman crucifixion, and born to rise from the dead. That's who we're pausing to contemplate and celebrate this morning. We're pausing to contemplate and celebrate this Jesus, who we say is the answer to all of the world's problems. And our hope rests on the belief that this seemingly far-fetched and incomprehensible tale is actually true. And so in John 1.14, John gives us two very specific statements that intend to bolster our hope and deepen our faith in the fact that God really did step into history to do something that had to be done in order for his creation to be made right with him and to be redeemed and ultimately to be recreated. Right? This John chapter 1 verse 14 gives us very, two very specific statements 
about how we have a God who doesn't just stand outside of creation and judge our failures, but instead steps into creation in order to redeem. Right, if I read it again, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. These two statements here, the Word became flesh, the Word dwelt among us. Those are statements that we could contemplate and deal with and preach about for months, if not years. These two short statements, we learn very quickly that God is telling us something about who He is, and He's telling us something about what He has done. Who is Jesus? He's the Word made flesh. And what has Jesus done? He's dwelt among us. And there's so much to digest in those two statements that I'm not sure that we're going to get it all this morning, but we're going to try to at least get a little bit about it. When we stop and think about the Word becoming flesh, Jesus becoming flesh, God coming to earth as a human, and God dwelling among us, when we stop and think about this, when we stop and think about who Jesus is, right, John has already made us aware that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. We've, we've heard that. Ben has spent a good amount of time in John chapter 1 reminding us of these truths, of Jesus' divinity and humanity. And when I read about Jesus here in the book of John, though, I think I still default to the idea that Jesus was God, Jesus was the creator, but not that Jesus was human. I think I am more prone to stress Jesus' godness more than I am to stress his manness. I struggle to grasp how the eternal, omnipotent God could live a genuinely human life. Doesn't make sense. And I probably, like many of us in this room, am more prone to see his divinity rather than his humanity. But where that leads us, if we don't stop to contemplate Jesus' humanity as well, where that leads us is to recognize the creator of the universe, but to miss the carpenter from Nazareth. And we may see the Son of God, but we might miss the Son of Mary. When we miss the full and true humanity of Christ, we're missing a very precious part of our Savior. We miss the one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We miss the Christ whose heart grows warm when he meets us in our frailties and in our troubles and in our temptations. We miss the one whom the book of Hebrews says was made like us in every respect. A body like us, a a mind like us, emotions like us, temptations like us, sufferings like us, pain like us joy like us. When we stop to ponder the humanity of Christ, we are stopping to ponder very real and very significant ideas that concern ordinary sinners and sufferers like you and I on a daily basis. The doctrine of Christ's humanity is a doctrine for those who are on their sickbed or on their deathbed. The doctrine of Christ's humanity is for the immigrant and the refugee. The doctrine of Christ's humanity is for those who are lonely and anxious and who can't sleep at night. 
The doctrine of Jesus' humanity is for those who are constantly bombarded by temptation, for those who feel that life is falling apart around them, for those who have been constantly hurt and used and ignored and mistreated. When we feel the burden of all that it means to be human, the doctrine of Jesus' humanity tells us that we have a Savior who can sympathize. We have one who was made like us in every way, yet was without sin. One who felt weariness down to his depths. One who was misunderstood and slandered and mistreated. One who endured the death throes of the cross and was forsaken that you and I might not be. Charles Spurgeon said this, The sympathy of Jesus is the next best thing to his sacrifice. It has been to me in seasons of great pain, superlatively comfortable to know that in every pang which racks his people, the Lord Jesus has a fellow feeling. We are not alone, for one like unto the Son of Man walks the furnace with us. Right, the Brothers and sisters, hear me. We have a Savior. The point of this is that we have a Savior in heaven whose heart beats for us as his brothers and sisters. That's part of John it's part of why John 1.16 says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Right? And so the invitation from John chapter 1 is to come to that throne of grace because there we will find one like ourselves who can sympathize with us, who will welcome us, who will redeem us, and who will recreate us. Right? The enormity of the truth that Jesus is fully human, that God became man, is incredible. And the impact and the implications of that for us on a daily basis are truly beyond compare. That's who Jesus is. But what has Jesus done? That's the second part of that statement that we talked about earlier. We know who Jesus is, but what has Jesus done? John 114 says that he dwelt among us. But what does John mean when he says that Jesus dwelt among us? Surely he means more than that he just hung out on earth and lived in a specific part of the world for a little while. Surely he means more than that. I mean, that's what we do at Christmas, right? We hang out and we dwell with our family members for a little while. My family does not have a whole lot of Christmas traditions, but one that we do have um, is that every Christmas Eve, my mom cooks spaghetti and meatballs and the family gets together to eat spaghetti and meatballs. I've done that pretty much every year since I was nine, with the exception of maybe a, just one or two. I think it's pretty normal for many families um, for that to be the point of the holidays, to get together and to just be together for a little while. I'm sure some families don't have that tradition because of whatever reason, but that's the experience of many people, to just be together, to just live together, to just dwell together for a little while. You sit around with your family, you're just sort of together. But surely the angel in the book of Matthew meant something more than that when he tells Joseph, that the child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And surely John meant something more than that here when he said that Jesus dwelt among us. 
to fully understand what John means, I think we have to sort of back up in the story a pretty long way. We have to back up to the part of the story when God was delivering his people from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they're in the wilderness and God comes to Moses and he gives him instructions that he was to oversee the construction of a tent or a tabernacle that could move with God's people as they were moving through the desert. Exodus 25.8 says this, Let them make me a sanctuary. The Lord spoke to Moses that I may dwell in their midst. Right? And later on after that, when he, when he begins this process, he goes on to tell Moses in the same chapter about how the tabernacle is to be laid out, about what sort of furniture should be in the tabernacle. He specifically talks about the Ark of the Covenant and how it was to be on a part of the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where God would meet with His people and speak with them. He talks in Exodus 25 about how His presence would be revealed in a, in a pillar or a, or a cloud that would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And it's there that the Lord would speak with Moses. It was there that the glory of the Lord would fill the tabernacle. The tabernacle where the people of Israel would draw near to hear from God, to worship God, to meet with God, to experience God's presence, His realized presence. And what was true of the tabernacle during the days of Israel's uh, wilderness journey was even more the case in Jerusalem at the temple. Right? And it's against that backdrop that we need to understand the stunning declaration of John when he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word translated dwelt in John chapter 1 here is not the normal word to just live in a place or to live among a people. The word here means to set up a tent or to set up a tabernacle. And so when John says that Jesus dwelt among us, he's saying Jesus tabernacled amongst his people right and it intentionally points back to the old testament you can't miss the connection where god's glory where god's revealed presence his glory took up residence in the portable tabernacle and eventually in the temple in jerusalem john is not merely describing that jesus came to earth when he says that jesus dwelt among us he's not simply saying that jesus walked on the earth and had dinner with a few people his point is far more than the simple assertion that he was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth and had dinner with a few people. This dwelling among us is of far greater spiritual significance than just that. And so now God has chosen to dwell with his people in a more personal way in the word become flesh, in Jesus the Word, as John calls Him, Jesus is the true and ultimate embodiment of the glory of God on earth. Which is the complete, right, that's the complete and perfect manifestation of the presence of God among His people, the Shekinah glory of God. The place of God's glorious dwelling is in the body of Christ on earth. The glory which once shined in the tabernacle or the temple of old, veiled in the mysterious cloud, was simply a pointer to the excelling glory and presence of God on earth in the person of Jesus. And further embodied in Christ's church, 
the body of Christ after the resurrection and ascension. The overall point here is this. For centuries, the tabernacle and eventually the temple was the place of sacrifice where forgiveness of sins was obtained, where you met with the presence of God. But today, we don't go to a place. We go to Jesus. To meet God, to talk with God, to worship God, you no longer go to a building or to a tent or to a structure. You go to Jesus. You come to Jesus because Jesus is the true and better temple. And Jesus has made a way for us to meet and know God. And that's what John meant when he says that Jesus dwelt among us. So what does all that mean for you and I? If we narrow all of this down, we've asked the question of John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. Who is God? What do we learn about God in this passage? We've asked the question, what does God do in John 1, 14? But if we narrow that down, what does all of that mean for you and I? Why does any of this matter? What does this tell us about who we are and how we are to then live in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Who we are. right? We are a people for whom God intentionally stepped into his creation to dwell with and to visit and to reveal himself to by the person of Jesus. A people who because of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done are able to know and to relate to the creator of the universe. We are a people because of Jesus and what he's done, a people to whom grace upon grace has been extended. A people that had become extraordinarily corrupt through the fall and through sin and through idolatry. But because of the fall, but because of sin and death. A people that, for whom God stepped into his creation to extend grace and ultimately to, to redeem and to recreate in order that his people might reflect his glory to the world around. Because of the fall, because of sin and death, God stepped into the world in the person of Jesus to recreate and to redeem his people and to recreate his creation, to reflect his glory. After all, isn't that why God created anything? To point to him, to reflect his glory? And God steps back into his creation to redeem and to recreate and to make things as God intended right so God stepped into the world to redeem his people to recreate his people and that makes us a people that God is slowly molding and changing to be more like Jesus the perfect human a people that God is molding to reflect his glory to the world around like Jesus did and like John is talking about in these few verses and so There are just three quick things that I want us to take away. That's who we are. That's what this means for us. We're a people that God has visited. But how then should we live in light of those things? How then should we live in light of Jesus' humanity? How then should we live in light of the fact that because um, God stepped into history through Jesus to make himself known to us, how then should we live? And here's the first thing quickly. 
First, I think we need to pause and realize that the story of the incarnation, the story of the second person of the Trinity coming to earth as a human is a missionary story. It's the story of a God who did the exact same thing he is now calling his people to do. After the resurrection and ascension, it is through the church, the collection of people that have met God through Jesus, the collection of people being redeemed to reflect God's glory to the world around. It is through the church that God intends intends for his excellencies and glory to be proclaimed. God is a missionary God who stepped into his creation to redeem his people. And therefore, we are to be missionary people. In word and deed, right where God has placed us, and wherever else God would send us or send anyone else and have us support. We're to be a missionary people because God was a missionary God. Because God stepped into creation. Because God sent his son into creation. We are to be the same kind of people. Second, if God became truly human, then matter matters. The incarnation means God assumed the physical body and entered the material world. Right? And many philosophies or religions would see the material world as an illusion, as something that is polluted and evil and to be escaped from, or simply as the product of chance. But the incarnation means that God believes the material world, His creation, His created things, the things that God created, the material world to be a good thing. And the resurrection and the and the incarnation means that um, that God has stepped into history to redeem the physical world, to redeem the spiritual world, and the resurrection is proof of those things. For God's people, this means that fighting disease, injustice, and hunger is on God's agenda right along with proclaiming His excellencies. If you go all the way to the end of the book of the Revelation, this story ends with God creating a new heaven and a new earth. Right? God's creation matters. We're not here just to escape from this place. God actually came to this place to redeem His people, to recreate this people, and will eventually recreate His creation, redeem it all to reflect His glory. Matter matters. Finally, if Jesus is God Himself become human, we, those who believe, those who believe and follow Jesus, we live with an irrepressible hope. And we are to be a hope-filled people. The doctrine of the Incarnation tells us that someday all deformity, decay, sin, disease, and imperfection will be wiped away. Whatever problem we face, whether disease or injustice or some other suffering, eventually God's power will triumph over it. Because Jesus stepped into creation, defeated Satan's sin and death, and rose from the grave to prove it all. As the psalmist proclaimed, weeping may remain for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Jesus is God, and that means God has dwelt among us. Jesus is man, and that means God cares for us. 
God became human in Jesus, and God intends to transform us into his likeness and to restore his creation to reflect his glory. The world is destined for joy sooner or later, and so are all those who love and long for his appearing. And that means that we get to be a people of hope because of Jesus, because Jesus stepped into history, because Jesus was victorious, because Jesus rose from the dead and defeated Satan, sin, and death, because Jesus is redeeming and recreating everything, we of all people get to be a people of hope, right? And so during this time of Advent where we're taking specific moments of our lives, a specific month of our life to reflect on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, of all things, let's be a people, a hope-filled people during this time. Let's as we look to the celebration of Christmas, as we continue to worship together, as we do all the things that happen in the life of our families and church, let's be a hope-filled people. Not a cynical people. Not a people who have experienced failure over and over and over, but a people filled with hope because Jesus has won, because Jesus has been victorious, because Jesus stepped into history to be victorious. We get to be a hope-filled people. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday here at Redemption. Um, and several things happen during this time of response. The band will come back up in just a second and continue to lead us in some songs and give us an opportunity to worship by singing. During this time, we have an opportunity as well to sit where we are and to reflect upon what we've heard and reflect upon what the Holy Spirit might be doing in our hearts and minds. We have an opportunity during this time to give. If you're a part of Redemption Church, there's a giving basket in the back where you can give or some instructions on other ways to give back there as well. And during this time as well, we have the opportunity to take communion. Every Sunday at Redemption, we take communion by coming down these side aisles over here, tearing off the bread, dipping it in the wine or juice, and doing that to remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Um, Scripture tells us that as we take communion, what we're doing is that we're remembering what Christ has done and that we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, then we invite you to come and take communion. God gives you the freedom to do so. But understand that what we're doing is we're remembering the body of Christ. We're remembering the blood of Christ and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe this story, that the gospel is true. And so I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to continue on with that time of response. God, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that you have stepped into history. That you have done something amazing to redeem your people. God, that you've acted on our behalf. And that because you've acted on our behalf, God, you've changed everything. Everything is different because of Jesus. So God, even now, I pray that you would help us to continue to reflect on Christ, that Christ would continue to be lifted high in this place, that we would continue to worship you and be drawn to you because of Jesus. Holy Father, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.